Welcome to Independent Truths with Scott Atlas, my new show that brings a uniquely rational perspective to important issues facing society today. Today's guest is Professor John Yu. John is the Emanuel Heller Professor of Law at University of California, Berkeley. He's also a senior fellow at American Enterprise Institute and a visiting fellow at Hoover Institution of Stanford. John is a prolific author and scholar of constitutional law. His 10th book is called Defender-in-Chief, Trump's Fight for Presidential Power that was published by St. Martin's Press in, in uh, 2020. He uh, is a regular contributor to the editorial pages of many of the country's uh, most important newspapers, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, etc. John has served in all three branches of government, including being an official in the U.S. Department of Justice, where he worked on national security issues uh, right after the 9-11 attacks. He has been general counsel of the United States Senate Judiciary Committee and was a law clerk for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. John graduated from Yale Law School and was summa cum laude from Harvard. Uh, we have an illuminating conversation today about many of the issues about civil liberties, freedoms, censorship, and all of the things that have been exposed by the pandemic and the management of the pandemic. I think you'll find it very illuminating. Thanks for joining us and stay tuned. John, welcome. Great to uh, have you here today. Thank you for doing this. Oh, thanks, Scott. It's great to be with you. Uh, I'm glad to see you got this new show going. Yes, uh, interviewing all kinds of thing of people because there's so many things happening in the world today. It's a, it's actually quite amazing. There's so many things to talk about with you specifically. Uh, given that you are such a scholar of constitutional law, I would like to explore some specific topics about what you know what we've seen during the pandemic what what has been exposed about the state of of things and the the freedoms that we have as Americans vis-a-vis -vis the constitutional uh prescriptions for those freedoms and the first thing is the sort of a fundamental question we've seen now almost 2 years of a presidential decree of a public health emergency in the United States, which I think is beyond what anyone had assumed would happen. And of course, it's arguable if there really is an emergency of public health at this point. But I, I sort of want to get to, you know, what is the legal definition or the constraints for issuing such a decree? And I'd like to talk about the the implications of giving that decree, because that has specific uh, there's a reason why that statement is made, uh, because it has a lot to do with things, uh, drug discoveries, the uh, mandates, and all this. The first thing to keep in mind is that the power of declaring a public health emergency is not inherently presidential. If you were opening up the Constitution, you would not see the words public health or emergency in the text. You certainly would not see it under Article 2 which is where the presidency's powers are set out. Uh, any, to the extent there is a power in the federal government to declare a public health emergency and then to take measures to combat it, it's up to Congress. Congress passed something called the Public Health Services Act, really back in the 1940s. And a lot of the lo these laws are quite old and have never really been tested as 
They've been tested these last few years. And it's there that Congress gave the executive branch the authority to declare a public health emergency. Yeah, but as you know, Scott, as I know, when Congress sits down to write laws, they're never really very specific. And right. so they didn't really define what a public health emergency was. I mean, it basically just says an emergency you know, about a threat to public health. And it doesn't say what kinds they are, doesn't certainly list any kind of list of diseases or illnesses that uh, would qualify. It really, the Congress leaves it up to the executive branch. And one other thing is, as with many things in our Constitution, the courts are involved. Uh, the, the statute, the Public Health, you know, the Public Health Services Act, doesn't say courts aren't allowed to review the declaration. It doesn't say courts aren't allowed to hear cases about individual liberties during such a declaration. But because Congress uh, wrote the, st the statute in such a vague way, it doesn't address the questions that you're raising, Scott, which is how long can an emergency go on for? Uh, what qualifies for an emergency? Do, do the powers of the government uh, get broader or narrower based on the type of public health emergency? One other point then uh, uh, about the general background of the law of public health emergencies is the, under our constitution, the powers of the federal government are supposed to be limited. That's one thing you would get if you breezed through our very short constitution. The, our founders gave the federal government what we call enumerated limited powers. In fact, the federal government is not responsible for public health throughout the country. The way our constitution works is that most of the powers over domestic affairs are assumed to reside with the states where they had always been and were at, the, at 1789, at the time of our ratification of the constitution. And that the federal government just sort of intercedes in specialized areas where you really need a federal government. So in general, when you have a public health emergency, the primary regulator, the primary role should be played by states, not by the federal government. And the federal government is supposed to be playing a backup role. You know, it can provide money for research, or it can buy PPT, or it can provide information, or it can provide guidelines. But our constitution, when it comes to public health, as it does with crime, as it does with all kinds of, almost most affairs in our lives, it's really the states that are supposed to be the primary decision makers. And so even if President Trump or President Biden declares a public health emergency, that doesn't suddenly give the federal government, under our law, vast powers to regulate everything and everybody in the country. Right. I think what, what was confusing and sort of disconcerting in this pandemic at least to me, was there were a couple things going on. One was that there was a sort of a, a desire for elected officials to hide behind someone else's declaration. And what I mean by that is while the governors were up in arms at the beginning of this saying they want to be in charge of their own states, mm -hmm. uh, they were anxious to have a federal declaration of a public health emergency or mandates or policies so that they could just say, we, in my opinion, they were just saying, well, we're going to go with what they say. Particularly the CDC, federal health agencies, became a sort of rule setters rather than simply advisory bodies. And uh, similarly, this happened uh, under two administrations in a row. It's happened 
where there's a, a common statement made, well, whatever the CDC suggests, that's what we're doing, as if the elected leaders are not actually responsible for the decisions. Has there been uh, such a situation in the past where there's been such, a, in my uh, way of thinking, a, a desire to abrogate the uh, authority to others I don't. I think it's sort of surprising that that happened because people that run for office, particularly executive level positions, want the authority. Yeah, Scott, that's a good point. Uh, sadly, it's all too true, and I think many levels of government. Uh, look at the vast administrative state we have now. Uh, HHS. Look at all the money it spends, all the things it does, all the functions it's taken on, which used to be the job of the states. Uh, what has happened at the federal level, and you see this with the Public Health uh, Emergency Act, is that Congress uh, delegated all these powers to the executive branch, to the agencies, because they, the members of Congress didn't want to take political responsibility for any of the decisions having to do with COVID. They were happy to spend lots of money, but actually figuring out, like, what should we do? Uh, what should the policies be? Right? You would have members of Congress just saying, oh, we just want the experts to tell us. Uh, you know, this is uh, very much a part, uh, this is very much a part of uh, going back 100 years. This is uh, you know, Weber's description of bureaucracy. This was Woodrow Wilson and the original progressives' idea was to take away power from those, oh, dirty politicians and transfer it to these experts who would become neutral and divorced from everyday pressures of politics. And they would come up with, the right answers, right? Uh, that's very, uh, I think, contrary to the American system of government and the way our constitution was set up, where you know, we're demo a, re a republic, where we elect people and those elected people make the policies and they are accountable to us. One thing then that we saw, as you described, Scott, is that this is now happening at the level of federal state relations. So it's not just Congress delegating power to these experts so they can wash their hands of difficult decisions. But it's now you saw governors saying, oh, no, I'm doing this because those experts in Washington think this is the best policy. I think actually it's quite uh, different than what our founders thought when they set up our federal system, where they thought states could have different policies. The reason we have states at all, one of the reasons is because the country's large and diverse. Right. And you would want to have different decisions made and different policies for different parts of the country that you don't need to have lockdowns, for example, in uh, largely rural, sparsely settled parts of the country where, you know, you, you, it's easy to walk outside, look out the door and not see anybody. Why would you need to wear a mask? Uh, those rules might be very different in a very dense city. Federalism accommodates that. So I agree with you. I was uh, really struck also, Scott, at the, at, not just at the beginning, but during the pandemic, how many states sort of willingly gave up in a way their authority to make the decisions about the, the pandemic, because that's what our constitution expects of them. That's what our political system expects of them is for the states to make those decisions and not to defer to right. uh, bureaucracy. It, yes. I, yeah. And it's hard to, it's easy to guess. It's hard to know the motivation, but I think, uh, the fear uh, of the disease by the people in power, I think was a, was an under acknowledged factor uh, and they, they're in a fear of, of uh, sad fear of uh, a failure of leadership, frankly, of people who were elected to lead.
and take the responsibility for for the you know for leading. I mean, the you know the the leadership positions are not uh, just for uh, sort of having power. There's a responsibility. The burden is the responsibility. Uh, you have to step up and take it. You know, I, I I do want to explore one 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 part of the declaration of a public health emergency, and that is the reason that it's done. Uh, is not just to tell people what to do. There are sort of specific uh, things that can be done about, for instance, rapidity of drug approvals, emergency use authorizations. And I wonder um, if you think uh, that will be undergoing scrutiny now. We know there will be more public health emergencies. We know there will be other crises of a variety of forms even the pandemic specifically. And I wonder if we've learned some lessons about that or if we're going to still see that again. I wonder what your thoughts are on that and if laws need to be revisited for specifically constraining the duration of a public health emergency or a more rigid definition. Because as you said, these definitions don't really exist. And this is really interesting from a constitutional perspective. This is one of the most important uh, consequences of the whole COVID emergency was that I think the Biden administration has gone so far in stretching beyond the real limits, uh, it's, a, it's delegated powers from Congress, that the courts have finally woken up and are placing, for the first time, some very fairly uh, pretty careful review of what the executive branch is doing under the guise of these emergency declarations. In the past, and this is just not public health emergencies, it's also national security emergencies, war, and so on, the courts have always been reluctant to say whether something really is an emergency or not. They would say, oh, we're, you know, we're courts. We're not out there running fact-finding expeditions and mm -hmm. having a hearing. It's up to the legislature and the president to decide whether there, there's an emergency, whether the facts on the ground justify declaring an emergency. And they've generally, the courts have generally deferred to the decisions of the elected branches. And I think wisely so. The problem is that the Biden administration has so stretched its powers, I think, uh, and as the court has agreed, uh, beyond the law, that the courts are now becoming quite skeptical of the national emergency in the public health area. And they're saying they're quite willing now to block the executive branch. This, is, this has never really happened before, to block the executive branch's decisions. So just a, a few of the decisions, as you mentioned, I think earlier, uh, restrictions on religious worship. Uh, the court uh, initially said that they would allow states uh, to um, place churches, synagogues, synagogues, places of worship under restrictions, lockdown restrictions. But then about a year into the lockdowns, the court said, no, you can't treat churches and synagogues differently. Mm -hmm. At the very least, they should be treated the same. But they, so the court, uh, I think Justice Gorsuch uh, notably wrote, well, you're, you're saying bike repair shops are allowed to be open, but churches can't. That violates the freedom of religion. I and think the, this, if I can interrupt yes. here, th this is really one of the things that ordinary people uh, and non-legal minds like myself 
understood that there was a break in common sense here that why it was so selective, certain businesses, mm. certain assemblies, if you will, could be maintained, whereas others could not, including those explicitly designated as uh, a, an essential freedom, like freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, yeah. specifically. I think this is one of the uh, big uh, sort of keys to making public uh, the public not accept some of these lockdown measures was because the, the common sense of it seemed to be violated. It, the public was lost on that, on that sort of, uh, there was no rationale for that, it seemed, beyond the law itself. It just seemed very selective. And I think one of the other things that we saw anecdotally were people were uh, not just limited in their freedoms to, to move or to congregate, but they were, there were certainly a lot of anecdotal stories about people being unable to visit their relatives in hospitals, their sick mm -hmm. relatives, their sick mother and father, including, uh, in some cases, unable to, rem to check them out from the hospital. It was very, very uh, shocking to me, the limitations on rights that we assumed we had. Yeah, exactly. And usually during an emergency, uh, and actually when it comes to general policy, the courts will usually say, you know, as long as it seems rational what the government's doing, we're not going to say the law requires the government to implement the best policy. They just have, we're just going to test to see if what they're doing is just minimally rational. And as you point out, Scott, a lot of the things during the lockdown policies didn't even seem to pass that test. And the courts started to, all right, say, why are you closing churches when you're keeping open bike shops? And I think marijuana dispensaries. I think that was another example mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, the court just found inexplicable. Then I think another area where the court has become even more skeptical is the Biden administration, uh, I think according to the court, appears to be using the emergency as, uh, as a pretext to legislate in other areas. Right? So right now, the court has taken this uh, case about student loans. Right? What does the national emergency of public health really have to do with forgiving the student loan debts of millions of people to the tunes of hundreds of billions of dollars? I could see a case for saying, well, maybe during the period of a public health emergency, when we're saying you're not allowed to go to work, you, the government might say, we'll suspend payments until you know, things get back to normal. But to say we're just going to cancel everyone's debts? Based on income, the court has taken that case. Uh, they're going to hear arguments on it this year. And I, I think the court can't escape uh, the realization that the, what the Biden administration is really doing is that they're just trying to use the public health emergency as a guise to protect all these other economic and social policies uh, that ha has wanted to achieve but can't get through Congress. Yeah. Uh, and, oh, we just want other example. Oh. oh, go ahead, John. Well, just well, one other example of that is the court uh, struck down this uh, ban on evictions throughout the country. And th right. I think this was a really extreme exercise of federal power. It, basically, the federal government went ahead and um, amended every landlord-tenant contract in the country, which uh, most people, most scholars, I think generally would agree, the government doesn't have the power to rewrite every contract on landlord-tenant law in the country and said, no one's going to be allowed to be evicted. You could be years behind on your payments. You could trash your apartment, and so on and so on. 
You could just you could decide not to pay anything at all and live there rent-free for two years, three years, as long as the public health emergency goes on. And the court said, this is really remarkable because this court really hasn't intervened in economic policy since the 1930s. The court said, no, we're not going to allow you to, the Biden administration to claim public health emergency and then have a, right, just like a free ticket to do whatever it wants. There has to be some sign that Congress wanted the executive branch the ability to have this power over such an important social and economic reason. And the court then followed that with another decision striking down the nationwide vaccine requirement on similar grounds. The court said, yes, there might be a public health emergency. Yes, there are different things the laws allow you to do. The law has never said that the government can basically force every American to take a vaccine. Uh, Maybe that's up to the states. California could require vaccines, but the federal government can't because it's a government of limited powers, as we said earlier. And so the court remarkably struck that law down too. So uh, just an example, the Biden administration has been using these public health emergency powers so broadly that they've actually ruined the kind of confidence and deference that the courts used to display for a century, really, to the government and how it handles emergencies. You know, sort of, it's interesting that Tocqueville uh, wrote, I think, that the last mainstay of the United States of America against tyranny, what he called tyranny of the majority, was the court system. So we're sort of seeing some of that uh, come into play. You know, the other observation that I personally make and others have made it is that this was always framed, the pandemic was framed in terms of this is a war. And when you invoke that kind of terminology, it's very persuasive on the public. And I think that's why it was used. But it was also, uh, it sort of set up the, the in a way, the legal sort of uh, comparison, if you will. And, and maybe I'm wrong about that, but I sort of think it was, there's an analogy here. This is wartime. And in wartime, uh, you know, almost anything goes. Uh, and because we have not had lockdowns really like this in, in a public health case. In fact, the standard lockdown policy was already, uh, it was already known for 15 years plus that lockdowns were both ineffective and harmful and they shouldn't be used. They were not recommended. So this was really the first really severe draconian lockdown that was used. But I think it was used in a way as if it were war, wartime. Uh, and I and I think it really did, as you said, uh, it be, it has become it was abused in the beginning, but it certainly has become abused and almost an excuse for doing all kinds of things. And that is really the reason, in a non-legal way, why the terminology public health emergency has been re- renewed over and over again when the pandemic there is no public health emergency. Uh, and yet it's being renewed and was re- was renewed through the spring uh, of this year, 2023. I'd like to talk uh, as an issue about what we're what we've seen with freedom of speech. And what we know, as as you clearly know, uh, and what I personally and many others experienced was that uh, there were there were restrictions on speech that were sort of shocking. Uh, during this pandemic, shocking to people like me who were naive about uh, that sort of thing, being a university professor where universities are supposed to be the centers for the free exchange of ideas. But it wasn't just university 
uh, indirect or nuanced censorship or censure or harassment or bullying. It was actually, uh, now that we've seen uh, evidence of censorship directly by social media and directly in, in conjunction with our government. And I think this is really, uh, at least to the lay public uh, like myself, unprecedented, shocking, since we're a country that is founded on and based on these freedoms. How, how, how is this going? I'd, li I'd like you to hear what you think about what's happening with this, the, the idea and also uh, of the censorship, and especially in social media, which again, it's complicated. These are private companies. And and the and how important it is that we actually see evidence that the government was involved in directing it. This is also one of, going to be one of the major issues that comes out of the pandemic. Was I, as you say, I think what we're learning now about what social media was doing to try to influence debate to suppress opinions it didn't like uh, was uh, incredible and shocking. And now what we're learning about uh, the government being involved with the decisions of social media here, uh, I, I agree, it's even more uh, shocking. And I think what's, uh, here's how I, I, I would talk about, think about it, is um, if there were no government involvement at all, there's still an interesting question whether uh, Google, Facebook, Twitter have an obligation to be an open forum for the speech where they don't discriminate on the basis of viewpoint. So uh, obviously, if it was just normal private property, like your front yard, my front yard, we're allowed to put whatever signs we want on there. We're allowed to kick people off we don't want on our front yard. We don't have. To, we can decide not to speak at all and just leave our front yards open and not put any campaign signs. And that's, that's the traditional rule. But uh, there's long been a doctrine called the common carrier idea. Uh, I, I think I spoke about this at your, your Hoover Institution, your Hoover yes. Institution, your know, policy boot camp, where uh, we've always had exceptions to that principle. You know, private property owners control their property and they can have whatever speech they want. When it comes to large networks that provide important social benefits, where there's basically a monopoly. So uh, United Airlines can't kick Nancy Pelosi off because they don't like Democrats. The utility company can't say, uh, I'm not gonna, you know, hook up Gavin Newsom to the electrical grid because I don't like we don't like Democrats. Certain kinds of networks like utilities, transportation networks, and so on. AT communications like AT and T and Verizon, they are not allowed to discriminate because the they are essentially a monopoly. And so I actually think the legal system is moving towards treating Google and Facebook and Twitter in that same way, because they essentially now are, uh, they essentially hold a monopoly over how most Americans participate in public speech and the discussion of uh, politics. Uh, so even before you get to the government being involved with, right, uh, what do they call it? shadow banning or outright right. banning people, I could see the courts eventually forcing these companies to follow a non-discrimination uh, policy anyway. But in this particular case, and this is why I say COVID again, it's an example, again, just like with Biden going too far in the courts, slapping them back, the administration back. Here's another example. The social media companies went too far. They abused their power 
And because of that, they're going to spark, I think, this also, this reaction by the legal system, by the courts. And, and COVID accelerates that because now we're learning that the White House or the FBI was suggesting to these social media companies, oh, you should take a look at this person's speech. You shouldn't let, you shouldn't let this person's uh, tweets or comments uh, spread or be easy to find. That would be potentially illegal because uh, in a standard First Amendment law, uh, the government right, can't ban people's speech and the government can't basically be in cahoots with other people to ban the speech. So I mean, you know, this seems to be more, 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 an uh, more of an obvious legal break here. There's not a lot of ambiguity on on the way the government has acted here. It seems to me, and I'm asking this. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas a, in a private company, in a funny way, would seem possibly to be able to defend itself because they were told to do this by the federal government. Uh, what what does that mean in reference to the private companies and their liability? Ah, well, you know the federal. You know the in these cases, you look at these tweets. I don't. I don't think this is a very good defense for uh, Google or Twitter or Facebook for them to say, "Well, we were coerced by the government." Uh, because you, if you look at the tweets, you, do, you don't really see it that ham-handedly. You see something more, uh, you know, like what you see in mafia movies or something, where the government just says, "Oh, this is a great network. Uh, we regulate you in lots of different ways. Could you help us?" <laughs> that, right. And so, I think that that, I mean, the government's going to be liable because the government's not allowed to try to skirt around its free speech obligations by, you know pushing private actors to do it, but the private actors were conspiring with the government to do it. I think they're both going to be ultimately liable in some way to the people who are banned. Uh, mm-hmm. I think, as, as you say, I think that's a easy, this is an easier case than the harder one, which is just Twitter banning people, you know, Elon Musk banning people he doesn't like from his own personally owned network. I think we're going to get to the point where those networks are going to be required to be fair and open to everybody. But the fact that they these networks were conspiring with the government to uh, blackball disfavored speakers is just going to get us there faster. What about the whole quagmire of of these companies having boards of accepted uh, or uh, you know misinformation? I, and this misinformation is not just about these companies. There's a new law, as you're well aware, in California on medical licensure where the uh, medical licensure board has, uh, I think it was October 22nd, 2022, put in a law that said for specifically COVID, but misinformation, which was by their definition, anything that it deviates from what they considered standard of community standard of care. Uh, is a cause for revocation of a medical license. I mean, this is a different sort of uh, freedom of speech issue. In in a in a way, it's it, it in many ways it's more harmful because as, as you know, I think as everyone knows, uh, and as you know as an attorney and I know as a doctor, the the way medical uh, dialogue goes between doctor this sort of relationship, the so called doctor patient relationship was was sort of a sacred uh, part of of the way medicine is practiced 
uh, and you know, medicine is individual. Not it's it's more it's an art and a science, as they say. And so, how do you see that going? Because that seems to me, as a, as a doctor, uh, completely antithetical uh, to the way science and medical science is done, as well as clinical practice. Medicine is not by by consensus. Uh, first of all, uh, and you know, m- medical science changes, and so misinformation is at the eye of the beholder. Yeah, this is, uh, I think, another sad uh, consequence of COVID, as we saw, uh, you and I saw it up close, being university professors, is the uh, the extent of these institu- these great American institutions, uh, law, medicine, science, universities thought they should be in the business of censoring thought and speech, uh, when actually openness of thought and speech is critical to the scientific method or critical to medical advances or legal advances. And so the sad thing is you're seeing this go on with the professions now, with the medical boards saying, we're going to uh, tell doctors what they're allowed to say and not say to their patients, particularly in an area where there's still a lot of debate about what right, what's happening, what's good policy or bad policy, and just to compare it, it'd be as if uh, the the uh, the bar for lawyers said, "You're just not allowed to make certain arguments in defense of your clients. You're not even right. allowed to talk to your clients about certain kinds of defenses they might raise in court." And suppose they're disfavored. Suppose they were to say, "Oh, you're not allowed to." You know, because we the bar or we the medical board, we believe so much in diversity. We're not going to allow our lawyers to challenge diversity, right? Or we're not going to allow doctors. It's it's the same thing, it seems to me. And so I expect that these kind of restrictions are going to lose in the end in our courts. That our courts will see that these are not really, you know, this is the right way you do a certain specific delicate operation, right? And this is the way you should do it. Um, but it's really about censoring the speech of doctors or censoring the speech of lawyers or trying to censor the speech of professors. And ultimately, we all lose, as you say, Scott, because, right, think about if Galileo were around. Right? Was, was he engaging in misinformation right, by saying the sun was at the center of the solar system? Uh, under the rules of the day, you know, the, uh, you know, our university administrators would have been in the same position as the you know, Vatican bureaucracy holding a trial of Galileo. Uh, right. You know, the, we all lose because it slows down our ability to find the truth, and, which is for the better of uh, soci- our country and society. And it's Absolutely. a terrible thing our institutions are tinkering with the, you know, these, uh, the scientific method or legal arguments, the, the way of th- critical thought that have you know, served us so well for centuries, just over because Absolutely. of the COVID yeah. pandemic. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, uh, what's frightening, and you've you've heard me say this, is that it took the Catholic Church 359 years to admit that Galileo was right and the Earth moved. And I, I'm uh, I'm a little bit concerned. I'm very concerned uh, that we're going to be very slow uh, in in putting forward the remedies for this sort of thing because the public is being harmed tremendously by the the lack of this uh, ability to talk about things freely. And we will never arrive at the truths that we need uh, in, in future crises. And these are inevitable. So, uh, yeah, it's very frightening. We have a lot of, uh, lot of work to do, a lot of things to discuss. 
Uh, and I think the discussion of the issues themselves about the lack of discussion, if you if you understand what I'm saying, it is very important to make the public aware because I think most people really want the freedoms that we we all thought we had. All right, John, I think I'll I'll leave it there because I don't want to take too much of your time, but it's it's always great talking to you. Thank you so much for doing this. And uh, I hope that uh, we can have you back. Oh, yes, yeah, Scott. Thanks for having me. I, I, I look forward to, I feel like we only scratched the surface of a lot of the things we have, uh, our interests that we have in common. So I'd love to come back and look forward to more episodes of your podcast. Great. I'm going to take you up on that. Have a good day. See you later. Thank you for listening to Independent Truths with Scott Atlas. If you want to find out more about today's guest, Professor John Yu, uh, please check out his links at the University of California Berkeley Law School and at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. And don't forget to subscribe to our show on YouTube as well as Spotify, Apple, Google, and anywhere else that you're listening to podcasts today. And I'll see you next time.